Today we begin our study in 2 Samuel, and we'll pick up where we left off last year with uh, 1 Samuel. So let's read the last chapter of 1 Samuel to remind us of where we are in the story, and then we'll work through the first chapter of 2 Samuel uh, in this morning's sermon. So here from God's Word, 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchashua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word and we praise you that by your Holy Spirit you have preserved the accounts of your servants, David and Jonathan, your uh, wayward servant Saul. And Father, in the story of their lives, you are pointing us to Jesus. And Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would do two things today, that you would convict us of our sins and that you would point us to Jesus, that you would point us to the great story of redemption that you have woven throughout history with your people, his body, and our head, our King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, guide us through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have good news and I have bad news. Which one do you want first? I, I, I don't really. I don't really have, but... I like asking that question. I think that's a funny question to ask. Um, to be the one asking it, to be the one on the receiving side, I really hate that question. I really hate being asked, which do you want first? Now, some of you said the good, and that's really weird to me because I always want the bad news first. Give me, get the bad news out of, in fact, why are we wasting time? I want the bad news so that maybe I can be consoled by the good news later. But if something's bad and I need to know about it, I need to know about it right now. Quit messing around and tell me what the bad news is. Now, I guess some of you want the good news first uh, because it, it might mollify or soften the bad news. And maybe, maybe you're just so optimistic you think, oh, the bad news can't be that bad. And the bad news will pale in comparison. But all this assumes that the person who's bringing the news to you 
knows what is bad news and knows what is good news. They could bring you very bad news to them, but when you hear it, you think, oh my goodness, that's not bad news. That's actually quite good. And let me tell you why. On the other hand, it's possible on occasion that somebody brings what they think is good news, but it's actually really, really bad news. And you don't want to hear that at all. That's the case at the opening of 2 Samuel. If you followed along in 1 Samuel chapter 31, flip over to 2 Samuel 1, because that's where we're going to begin now. At the opening of 2 Samuel, a man, an Amalekite, brings news to David. He has what he thinks is, I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is the army of Israel has been vanquished and the Philistines are all living in the cities of, of Israel. That's the bad news. But the good news is, wait for this, David. I bet, you, I bet you're not going to believe this. The good news is King Saul is dead. And oh, by the way, I'm the one who killed him. Aren't you, aren't you proud of me? However, David doesn't think that any of this is good news. This is bad news and worse news. This is bad and bad news. And in fact, um, he has the man executed for bringing him this news and for claiming to have killed King Saul. Now to add another layer of tragedy to all this, the guy bringing the news who said, hey, guess what? I've got new good news. King Saul is dead. He didn't really kill King Saul. He lied about it. Talk about a colossal miscalculation. What, bringing what you think is really good news and before the end of the day, your head is separated from your body. Not only was the good news bad, but it was a lie and the man lost his life because of it. Well, before we get too far into the drama, let's figure out where we are in history. Today, we're going to start at the beginning of the second scroll of Samuel. First and second Samuel uh, are not two parts of, of uh, two, two different books. First and second Samuel are two parts of one book. Uh, the, the, you know that old books were written on scrolls, and when a scroll got too fat to, to roll out, it got too big, you start on a new scroll. And so we have two scrolls, first and second Samuel, all together, one book. First and second Kings, first and second Chronicles are the same way. They're, they're two scrolls, but one book. Well, let's remember where we left off in the first scroll last November. We studied uh, 1 Samuel last summer and last fall, and then we, we stopped in, with the end of 1 Samuel last November, and that's where we're picking up today. Let's, let's remember where we were. Toward the end of 1 Samuel, you'll remember that Saul is king over Israel, and because of King Saul's madness, because of his paranoia, because of his mistreatment of David, David is now living outside the land of Israel, and he's living among the Philistines. He's living in a city called Ziklag, which is far to the southwest of, of Israel and the land of, of Judah. And David is living with his family and with his mighty men off among the Philistines. And, and David has this wonderful deception going with the Philistines. The Philistines think, oh, he's defected. He's one of us now. He's on our side. When in fact, what David is doing is he's taking the opportunity to go out and he's attacking Canaanite tribes. He's mopping up the Canaanites that are left laying around. You know, at the end of Joshua, there are plenty of Canaanites left. They didn't completely conquer the land. Well, now David is going around and he's mopping up. He's finishing the conquest and he comes back with all kinds of treasure and loot after attacking these cities. And the Philistines are saying, wow, good job. You're, you're attacking your own people. You're attacking Israel. But in fact, David would never lift a finger against his own people. He's attacking Canaanites. And so he's got this wonderful thing going on where 
the, the Philistines think that he's with them. Well, where this all comes to a head is when Philistia gets ready to attack Israel. They marshal all their, all their armies. They, they muster everyone. David's got to show up. In order to keep this going, David's got to show up with his mighty men. And when they all get there, everyone assumes that David is just going to go with them and attack Israel. Until somebody, one of the Philistine captains, raises a question and he says, you know what? I'm not real comfortable taking David with us and his men to go attack Israel because I think we're going to get in the heat of the battle and his heart is going to turn against us and he's going to be a fifth column within our ranks and he's going to turn around and attack us. I'm not at all comfortable with this. I'd be far more comfortable if we sent David home. Well, David inside is saying, yes, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to go home. On the outside, though, he's got to say, oh, I can't go with you guys. Oh, really? I'm sorry. But at any rate, David turns and he goes back home, which is exactly what he wanted to do. He's let off, he's let off the hook. Now, while David and his mighty men were off doing all of this stuff and figuring out whether they were going to go or not, while they were away, a band of Amalekites, a Canaanite tribe, a band of Amalekites came and burned David's city and took all of his people, his family. They took them all captive and ran off with them. So David gets back home. He finds out his city's burned. He pursues the Amalekites. He defeats them and he rescues his captives. That's bringing us up to uh, the beginning of 2 Samuel in David's life. But meanwhile, in Israel, something else is going on with Saul. King Saul has heard that the Philistines are gathering for battle. King Saul has no fellowship with the Lord. King Saul has no priest that he can talk to. And so that's when Saul goes out in the middle of the night, uh, dressed in a, in, in a uh, costume, uh, so he doesn't look like himself, and he consults a witch. It's the next day after that terrible last failure of Saul, it's the next day that the Philistines attack and the army of Israel flees. The, the enemy, the Philistines, pursue Saul and his sons. And in the heat of the battle, and this is what we read just a few minutes ago, in the heat of the battle, uh, Saul is struck with arrows. He's severely wounded. And Saul calls out to his armor bearer. And he calls for his armor bearer to kill him lest the Philistines get the pleasure. He didn't want to give the Philistines the pleasure of striking the last blow. But the armor bearer knows better than to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. So the armor bearer doesn't do that. And so Saul falls on his own sword and Saul dies there on Mount Gilboa with his sons. Uh, those are the facts and we need to know the facts. So the armor bearer then kills himself. And, and, and this sequence of events is critical for us to have in our minds as we read what the Amalekite is about to say to David, because the Amalekite is going to bring a very different account, but he is a liar and he's trying to set himself up for uh, success in David's new kingdom. But this is how God brought an end to Saul. Saul had plenty of opportunities to change. He had plenty of opportunities to repent and be a true king after God's own heart. But Saul resisted and Saul spirals into this Disaster. There are so many things we can reflect on now as, as we um, kind of move away from Saul's life. There are so many tragic dimensions to Saul's death. Mount, uh, Mount Gilboa, where Saul dies, is all the way up north in Israel. And some of you have Bible maps in the back of your Bible, and you can check this out now or later. But Mount Gilboa, if you know a little bit about the geography of what we call the Holy Land, Mount Gilboa is almost up to the Sea of Galilee. 
The Philistines are an Egyptian people. They come, and I'm, if I had a map, I could show you. Here is Mount Gilboa, way up here. The Philistines are from way down here near Egypt. The fact that the Philistines have attacked and killed Saul and his sons on Mount Gilboa, they're way out of their territory. They're way out of their normal jurisdiction where they've been raiding and pillaging. The fact that they're up that far north fighting is a picture of the Philistine dominance over the land. And then the people, after the death of Saul, the people all move out of their towns and villages, and now the Philistines take up residence in the cities of Israel. The Philistines were the menace at the beginning of Saul's reign. Remember, it was the Philistines who captured the ark and took it uh, and put it in their temple. It was the Philistines who killed the sons of Eli. And so we need a man at the beginning of Samuel. We need a man who's going who's gonna to bring the fight to the Philistines. We need a man who's going to deliver us from the Philistines. And Saul was commissioned by God. That was God's word to Saul. Save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That was his commission. Saul was a tall man as well. We know that. And so Saul was Israel's giant that God had prepared to face Goliath. But instead of conquering the Philistines, instead of being faithful, instead of driving them out of the land, here at the end of Saul's life, uh, he dies at their hand and his failure is in full measure because the Philistines are running rampant all over the place. They're living in Israelite cities and they're all the way, they're all the way up north. So now at the end of Saul's life, the condition of the land is worse than it was when Saul became king. And now not only is Saul killed, but all but one of his sons is killed. He only has one son left that, that we'll get to uh, soon. And all of Saul's mighty men are dead. Saul's dynasty, his legacy, his presence is wiped out. Now think back to the beginning of Saul's life once again. The people were asking for a king like the nations. And that's exactly what they got. This is what you get when you ask for and want a king like the nations, like, like the rest of the nations have. After a full generation, after 42 years of Saul's reign, there's no improvement. We're right back to where we started. A king like the nations have is incapable of bringing any long-term deliverance. You have to have a different kind of king. You have, a king. you have to have a king who obeys God. You have to have a king who is a king after God's own heart. A king who will put the Philistines in their place. And you know, once David becomes king, we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves, but once David becomes king, you don't hear about the Philistines anymore. The Philistines drop off. You don't, you don't hear from them. Why? It's because of David's faithfulness and his victory under God and his victory in the strength of God over the Philistines. But now at Saul's death, they're in the same mess that they were before and maybe in some ways a worse mess. That's what happens when you trust in men to deliver you. The situation doesn't change. It only gets worse. So Saul was gravely wounded in battle. He asked his armor bearer to finish him off. Eventually Saul falls on his own sword. David knows none of this. David, David has none of this news until an Amalekite comes from that battlefield up in Gilboa and he goes the 80 mile journey all the way down to Ziklag where David is to tell him the news. And so uh, let's start with 2 Samuel chapter 1. We'll just kind of walk through this chapter uh, as briskly as we can. There's so much good stuff here to talk about and I will try not to say all of it. I'll just say 94% of it. Well, we'll get through it. Um, for, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. 
Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. Okay, here comes an Amalekite running to David, out of breath, panting and heaving. He had all the signs of real grief. Uh, his clothes are torn, he's got dirt on his head. The Amalekite comes to David thinking he's bearing good news, news that David is excited to hear. It would appear to anybody on the outside, anyone who didn't know David, that David is the ready rival to the throne, that, that, that David is the usurper, and that he's going to be ecstatic to hear that not only the king had died, but the prince had died as well. If, if Saul is dead and all the princes are dead, then I've got a clear path to the throne. And so the Amalekite can't wait to share the news with, with the new king. And he thinks he's going to be so exuberant in his celebration that he's instantly going to crown this Amalekite with all kinds of riches and glory. And he'll have a government job. He'll have a place on the cabinet and he'll have a cushy life uh, for the rest of his days. Now, you can see how motivated this man is. Again, it's an 80 mile trip from Mount Gilboa to Ziklag. And if it did take him three days, this is, uh, this is the third day. And this is the third day after David gets back. And, and depending on the timeline, it could have very well been the third day after the battle, which means that this man would have run a marathon a day to get down. I, I think that's humanly possible for, uh, you know, it possibly. It's not humanly possible for me. If I'm the human in question, it's not possible. But you could say this man is motivated and that he was hauling the mail coming from, from Mount uh, Ziklag. I'm, I'm sorry, from Mount Gilboa all the way down to Ziklag. He was moving fast and he was running. And when he gets there, he shares the news with David and he's so excited and then immediately goes from euphoria to horror to find that not only is David not happy about the news, but he's mighty displeased with the Amalekite as well. You see, uh, this is another part of this. David has just returned from fighting Amalekites who took his family. The last thing he wants to see is an Amalekite. The last kind of person he wants to talk to is, a, is an Amalekite. And now here's an Amalekite saying, you know what I just did? I just killed King Saul. He's not going to receive this well. This is a terrible miscalculation. Well, it's not a coincidence that David gets the news on the third day. This is, you know, whenever you see the third day, you stop and say, wait a minute. Is there some kind of resurrection going on here? Is this, is this resurrection? And certainly that's the whole story of the book of Samuel. The whole story of the book of Samuel is God is displeased with Israel. He's taking it apart and he's resurrecting it to new glory. There's reformation and revival going on here. So in the first half of the book, we've seen the working out of the Lord's plan to put Israel to death and resurrect her to new glory. And first he does this by taking down the tabernacle and the priesthood before re resurrecting it to something new. Back in the early uh, chapters of Samuel, you have the poor leadership of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and the tabernacle is just a mess and there's all kinds of sin and wickedness and perversions being tolerated. And so the Lord is fed up and he tears apart the tabernacle. He puts, the death, uh, he, he puts to death the priests who serve at the tabernacle. And at this point in the book of Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in somebody's living room. I mean, the, the, the tabernacle is not put together. The tabernacle has been put apart, pulled apart, and the, the Ark of the Covenant and the altar are not in the same place at this point because everything's been taken apart, and it's not going to be until much later that David starts to put it back together. 
So the book of Samuel begins with the death of a corrupt leader and his sons, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And here again in the middle of the book, at the start of the second big section, we have the death of another corrupt leader and his sons. And the word fall is present in both places. Remember back Eli, how did he die? He fell off his chair, right? Eli fell off his chair and broke his neck. Well, Saul falls on his sword. His armor bearer falls on his sword. Saul and his sons in verse eight lay fallen on Mount Gilboa, verse eight of chapter 31. David is gonna sing, how have the mighty fallen? Well, see, Saul has been falling for a long time. And finally now, this is his final, this is his final fall. But his fall and the fall of the kingdom is not the end of the story. Death never gets the last word. Not for the priesthood, not for the tabernacle, not for the kingdom. So just as, as after the fall of Eli, God had Samuel waiting in the wings and was ready to present Samuel. So now with the death of Saul, God has David waiting in the wings prepared to, to take over. So just as God put the tabernacle to death, buries it and is about to raise it back up. So God is now putting the kingdom to death, burying it before he raises it back up. So that's all embedded. This is the third day. And so we know that resurrection is about to take place. Verse three, David said to him, where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Now, so far he's telling the truth, and what he should have done now is shut up. And he shouldn't have said anything else, but he now has to embellish the story and lie. So verse six, then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the brace that was on his arm and have brought, him, uh, brought them here to my Lord. Uh, so everything, everything here is a lie. He's embellishing the story to, to ingratiate himself with David. He makes Saul out to be this coward where he doesn't say Saul was pierced with arrows. He says Saul was in great anguish. Saul was stressed. Saul was under a great amount of anxiety. And he didn't want to be killed by the Philistines. So he, he wanted somebody else to kill him. He, he paints Saul to be a coward, and that's not exactly the way it happened. He's lying. And even in the midst of his lies, there are some details that are intriguing. He claims that he saw Saul leaning on his spear. Well, whether or not he really saw that, that's certainly consistent because Saul has been leaning on his spear since very early in his reign. Saul relies on the spear and, and he uses the weapons of the kings of the heathen nations. But in the end, Saul's spear ended up being no more help against the Philistines than it was against David when he threw his spear at David. In both senses, he was powerless in using the weapons of worldly warfare. And so uh, it's also interesting that a Malachite claimed to have killed Saul 
In a very real sense, the Amalekites destroyed Saul's kingdom. Long before removing his crown and bracelet here, uh, long before Saul had fa fallen on his sword, Saul lost his kingdom, remember, because he uh, saved the plunder from Agag and spared King Agag, who was an Amalekite, right? And, and so the Amalekites have already wormed their way into Saul's kingdom and his life. And so now in the end, it's kind of this poetic justice that Amalekite relieves him of his crown and bracelet and brings it to David. These tokens of kingship he delivers to David. And by bringing these to David, God is turning the kingdom over to David. Even if God is using a lying Amalekite to, to accomplish his purpose, David doesn't have to reach out and snatch the robe of Saul like he was tempted to do and like he repented of as he even came close to David doesn't have to reach out and grab his royal robe. He can be patient and God delivers it in the hand of Amalekite. He delivers the crown over to David. Well, David doesn't know anything else but what he's just heard. David doesn't know the truth. And so David is, is grieving, grieving for the death of Saul and Jonathan, certainly but also grieving, thinking that this man has killed God's anointed. Verse 11, therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with them. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of Yahweh and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Now I wonder what the Amalekite is doing this whole time. We don't know, we catch up with him in a minute, but he delivers this news David tears his clothes, he weeps, they fast all day and all night, and the Amalekite is doing what this whole time? He's thinking, oh, I thought this was going to be good news. I thought I would be given a banquet for being the one to kill the enemy of David, uh, but this is, all, this is all very weird. And on David's side, here's what's fascinating, is that after everything that Saul has done to torment David, after everything that, that he's done to drive David out, David still grieves because the people of Yahweh have been crushed. The bad guys are rejoicing at, at, at the death of Israel's king. David isn't relieved. David isn't dancing. David isn't throwing a banquet because he gets to be king now. No, this moment reveals how true and how genuine David's love was for the, for the house of Saul and, and how he's really been truly submissive to Saul all along. If David had thrown a party at this point, it would have undermined everything that he had done so far in submission and patience to Saul. It would have, it would have looked, and it would have really been, it wouldn't have just looked terrible, it would have been awful if David had thrown a party. Well, okay, well, what's, the, uh, what's this Amalekite doing? Verse 13, then David said to the young man who told him, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, how was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. So he doesn't even get to say, uh, 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 well, it, uh, no, he just, David asked the question. He doesn't get an answer. And he says, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, your blood is on your own head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed Yahweh's anointed. When David asks who you are, he says, I'm an Amalekite. I'm the son of a foreigner. Maybe his family had joined with Israel at some point many generations ago. It's not clear how this man got to the battle. What's clear 
is his incredible overconfidence in thinking that David would be, would be pleased with his fabrication of the story. And, and he received justice when David ordered him executed. He didn't kill Saul. He, he, he very likely snuck through the battlefield after everything was over with, before the Philistines had come through and picked through the bodies. And he noticed Saul. He just happened to be the first one there to see Saul and took his crown and took his bracelet and headed off to go find David. But he received justice. Justice mixed with irony, certainly. He's punished for what he said he did, even though he didn't do it. He received what he would have received if he had done what he said, even though what he said was not based on fact. At any rate, the judgment of God found him in his lie and repaid him with his intent. God always delights in truth. God delights truth in the inward parts. And where there isn't truth, he exposes our secret sins to the light of his presence. And if you're the kind of person who thinks that you can manipulate other people by lies and conspiracies and, and, and just managing and thinking that you can control other people with, with games that you play and deception, your, you, your secrets will be revealed. They will be exposed. You will be found out. Jesus said, there is nothing concealed that it will not be disclosed. There's nothing hidden that it will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. We've got this idea that because nobody else can see what we're doing and nobody else can read our thoughts that we're clear and we're free. We've got this absurd notion that if we've eluded man's eye, then we've escaped God's gaze. And that's not the truth at all. This man didn't escape God's gaze. And because of his lie, and because of the murderous intent of his heart, and because he claimed to have murdered Saul, uh, David had him struck down. And now by killing the Amalekite, David makes a profound statement. David is not going to gloat over the death of Saul. And now he's going to make good on the promise that he made to Jonathan. He made Jonathan a promise. He said, I'm going to defend you and I'm going to defend your house. David's got several more things to do that we're going to see where he shows us his determination to protect the name and the reputation of Saul and his house. Uh, but this is just the first thing. Well, the rest of this chapter is David's song of lament. The book of Samuel begins with a song, doesn't it? It begins with Hannah's song. And the book of Samuel, way at the end of 2 Samuel, it ends with Psalm 18. David sings Psalm 18 at the very end of 2 Samuel. And here in the middle, we have another song. We have this song of lament. So the whole book of Samuel is bookended and put in the middle. There's songs in this, this uh, book. So now we have this lament here right in the middle. And here is how David weeps over, over Saul and Jonathan. Verse 17. David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. These are Philistine cities. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. 
They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Uh, just a few quick observations from this lamentation. The name of the song that David composes is called the bow, which is the weapon most uh, often associated with Jonathan. Jonathan uses his bow at many significant scenes. David poetically associates the man with his weapon throughout this poem, like he does Saul with his shield. The shield of the mighty is defiled, he says. The shield of Saul has not been anointed with oil. Uh, shields were wooden, covered with leather, and you rub the leather with oil to make it shine and to preserve the shield. And, and so thus your shield was anointed. Since Saul had fallen in battle, his anointed shield lay in the dust. That's a dramatic image of a fallen anointed king. A few times in the Psalms, a king or a prince is a shield for his people. So, so this association between Saul and his shield, between Jonathan and his bow, the, these men and their weapons, means that Jonathan and Saul not only held weapons, they not only used weapons, but they were weapons. They were weapons of God. Saul and Jonathan were God's weapons, and now they lie unused and useless on the battlefield. So see how he puts them so closely together. Weapons, weapons don't die, but men do. And that's what he says, how the mighty have fallen, how the weapons of war perish. The weapons have died. Saul and Jonathan are gone. There's a lot of foolishness about uh, what David says in verse 26. By that I mean there's a lot of foolishness that gets tossed around. When David says, I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Uh, there, there's this uh, innuendo that, that what David is talking about is some kind of unnatural relationship with Jonathan. And that's not, that's not true at all. What he's saying here is that Jonathan loved me more than any woman ever did. It, it doesn't mean that he had a male-to-male a, a -male relationship, a romantic relationship with Jonathan. What, it, what David is saying is that it would be hard for me to ever find anyone who loved me as faithfully or as self-sacrificially as Jonathan had. Jonathan's love for David was costly to Jonathan. Jonathan lost his relationship to his father. He lost his inheritance. He lost his place in line to the crown. Jonathan, remember, was older than David by about 20 years. They, they weren't peers. They weren't, you know, they didn't go to high school together. Yet Jonathan, the older man, was fully devoted to David and, and devoted to his becoming king of Israel. Back in 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan told David, Jonathan says, you will be king and I will be second to you. That, that phrase, I will be second, summarizes Jonathan's whole approach to the kingdom and, and to God's will. He says, you know what? God wants you very clearly to be king and I'm, I'm going to be second, so I'm going to support you with everything. So here David is just stating the obvious. I will never again have any friend, man or woman, whose love surpasses the love of Jonathan for me. No wife is ever going to be able to give up her throne for me. No, nobody's ever going to be able to love me this way that, that Jonathan loved me. That's what David is saying. And don't listen to anybody who wants to uh, pervert that. Uh, if you just read it and think about what, what David is saying, it's very pure and holy. 
Jonathan gave up his throne so David could be king. Do, do you know a man who gave up his throne so you could be a king? Do you know a man who gave up his throne so you could be a queen? Do we know a man who loves us more than any husband or wife will ever love us? Do we know a man who demonstrates that in, in a sacrificial way that nobody else could come close to repeating? Does Jesus' love surpass the love of women? Well, yeah, the, the love of Jonathan here is a reflection of the love of Jesus. And Jonathan's death here, we would just take just a minute to reflect on in closing the love of Jonathan uh, for David, now that David is weeping over his death. Uh, Jonathan's death uh, is, is full of, of helpful stuff to meditate on. Um, did, did Jonathan do something wrong to lose his claim to the throne? Did, did Jonathan fail in such a way that his death in battle seems to be what he deserved here? Why doesn't Jonathan get to be king? He was faithful. He, he, he was sacrificial. He did what was right. Why does David get the kingdom instead? How is that fair? Well, if we're ever tempted to doubt the goodness of God, we immediately need to close our hand over our mouths and say, wait a minute, uh, we, we can't question God's goodness. And we're to remind ourselves that God is always good. And God shows himself good through both the tragic and the triumphant, through the things that we rejoice over and those things that we lament over. For God's purposes, some of us are called to be more like David and to go from one extraordinary deliverance to the next. And many of us are called to live a life like Jonathan, where we pour ourselves out and we give and we give and we give sacrificially and we never see reward in this life on this side of the resurrection. And some of us are to live lives like, like both of them at different times in our lives. I want to, uh, just in, in closing, think, think back to, y'all all know uh, Hebrews chapter 11. It's, it's called the, the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame. Um, it, it, it details the stories of all the great heroes of the Bible. You're so familiar with this, but I'm going to read, pick up at the end of uh, Hebrews 11. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. That all sounds thrilling and exciting. Who wouldn't want to be numbered with those people who at at their sword, enemies flee, who, who triumph and have one victory and one deliverance after another, whose lives is a story of success. Who wouldn't want that to be the story of their lives? Any one of us, right? But it keeps going. We don't stop there. Sometimes we want to stop there and say, oh, that's wonderful. No, others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. So there's a couple categories here. 
God shows himself mighty and good and glorious through a couple of different ways. Through those who live this incredibly victorious life and those who live a life of tragedy. Now, none of us would willingly sign up for that second category, right? None of us would say, oh yeah, let's see, sawn in two, tempted, slain with a sword, wander about in sheepskins. Yeah, that, that, yeah that's one. sign me up for that, Lord. That's the one I want. None of us would sign up for that. But God signs us up for that. And God is still good. Our lives are more of a struggle than a victory and God is still good. And all of us who are united to Jesus are received into the arms of our Savior and we all get to rest with him. And we will all be resurrected to greater glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Jonathan dies in defense of a kingdom that he will never have. But he receives in his death a kingdom that he'll never lose. And that's true of all of these who had the second story, who had the suffering story. Jonathan's fine. So what what does this leave us? Well, don't look at Jonathan's that that you know, those who pour themselves out and serve and serve and serve, and, and, and it just doesn't turn out. Nothing really turns out the way you would expect it to. Don't look at Jonathan's and ask, man, where'd you mess up? Man, what are you doing wrong? Where did you sin? You obviously, you're, you're messing up big somewhere. I just don't know about it yet, but you obviously are really, really messing up. Don't look, at, don't look at Jonathan's life and say, wow, what a failure. What a, what a loser. Oh my goodness. It is, it is real easy for people who think they're living the victorious Christian life. It's real easy for those people to look at people who are suffering and say, man, you're really messing up. I mean, everything's easy for me. Lord just gives me everything I want. It's really easy to despise them and to criticize them. And if you want to know what that looks like from the inside, from the other side, I mean, it's all in the book of Job, right? (laughs) Job gets this from his friends, right? This kind of criticism and despite. Don't look at Jonathan's and say, man, y'all are really messing up. Man, you're really, boy, what are you doing? And then secondly, don't consider your own sufferings, your own conflict, your own opposition to necessarily be punishment, but that God is working out his purposes in the story of your life, purposes that no one may appreciate for many centuries into the future. Now, now we kind of look back at Jonathan and we say, oh yeah, that all makes sense. But, But I'm sure in the moment to a lot of people, it didn't make a lot of sense. So the last thought about this lament of David. David gets the crown, he kills giants, but that's not the whole picture, right? Saul was really, really cruel to David. Saul was extremely hateful and mean and obnoxious toward David, and yet David never disrespected Saul. He had lots of opportunities. He could have dishonored him. He came close, he cut the corner of his robe, and he was struck with guilt, and David repented immediately. And now that Saul is dead, David responds the exact opposite way from what I would. You know, if I heard Saul was dead after he had mistreated me the way he mistreated David, I would be shouting with joy. I would be skipping and dancing. We'd cook a pig. We'd do so, not in Israel. You'd cook a goat. I don't know what you cook. You cook a cow. You do something and you really rejoice. Finally, it's over with. What a relief. But that's not what David does, is it? All these things we've learned from the last couple chapters of Ephesians are all in play here. All the way to the end, David maintains submission to the authority that God has placed over him. And that authority was Saul. And David had to get far out of the way. David had to remove himself, but he still honors him. 
and it grieves him that Saul has died. He counts it as great sorrow. David deliberately chooses to remember the good things about Saul and not the bad, even in death. David had to submit to a lot of injustice, but he did it faithfully. He obeyed, and now he gets the crown and the throne and the kingdom. Glory and dominion only come after submission and obedience. It takes Jesus submitting to the injustice and false accusations and lies, submitting to a cross he doesn't deserve, in order for him to be crowned king of all creation. And Jesus calls us to the same life. So Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now that at the opening of this uh, study of, of David's life that you would guide us now through the next several weeks that we would see Jesus at every step, that you would show us uh, wisdom and reveal to us your purposes in the, in the world. So Father, now uh, grant us blessing and peace throughout the rest of the service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.